G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch and today our feature guest, well, brings back memories to my early years as a broadcaster. The Bell Streets, a musical partnership of Josh Meadows, singer from the Sugar Gliders and the Steinbecks, and Nick Batterham, who's been central to the band's Blindside, The Earthmen and Cordrazine. Recently released is their debut album, Monument, which features the singles Fragile and Disappointment Town, with an appearance from Kelly Day from The Broads and other special guests across the record. Nick of the Bell Streets was kind enough to join John for a chat. Nick Batterman joins us on the line. G'day, John. Firstly, I want to note friendship, Turkish bread, peppermint tea, and now a debut record. Does that sum up some of the story between you and Josh? Uh, I guess it does. The points along the way, it does come from a place of friendship, like with me being in the Earthmen, Josh was in the Sugar Gliders and the Steinbecks uh, in the 90s, and those bands and my bands, Blindside and the Earthmen, we were on the same label, Summer Shine Records, and we played shows together, toured together, and all knew each other very well, uh, even did backing vocals on each other's records, that kind of friendshipy music thing. But we'd always talked about doing something together and I've always felt an affinity with Josh. Uh, I was very pleased to find out it was a mutual admiration society. And coming from that place, the idea of how oh, to be a cool thing to make music together, I just love his lyrics and I love his expression, he's a very sensitive, gentle man and the music that he's created has always been up there with my favourite music of all time. The Summershine single of the Sugar Gliders, uh, the furlough EP called Give Me Some Confidence, that song on a 7-inch was the first 7-inch I ever bought. There's all this love for the music and the man behind it. But actually coming to do something together it sort of feels a bit random that it did ever end up happening because that time of shared experience is long past for us, you know. It was in the 90s that we were really bumping around together. But it had been something that we both had in the back of our minds. But I just put it to him, like, come and let's do it. I think he'd been experiencing a bit of writer's block or that sense of feeling a bit stale. I felt like, well, let's see what we can do together. One of the first seven inches I bought, which saved me from the heartbreak of my first ever relationship, was this one right here by Blindside, oh, wow. uh, which featured Plague and To Be Found was the other song. So thank you for this release on Summershine, Shine 026, back from 1992. The reason why I also show you this is photography. Clearly back then, 1992, photography and imagery was important. Can I ask, please, Nick and photography, when were you first interested in photography? Well, what an unexpected twist, but I, I welcome it. I've always played down the visual side of making records um, because it's sort of my name appears on the sleeve enough times without saying, uh, <laughs> and I did the artwork too, look like I could be a really amazing artist. So there's sort of a shyness about it, but... I think I got into it as a teenager around the same time that I got into playing guitar, 15, turning 16, and it was just I had an old Practica SLR camera 
that had been my mum's, I think, but Dad gave me some basics on what f-stops are and how you just get set a basic exposure. It's like anyone with that, I think, just photograph things around the house and out in the garden and lots of pictures of birds and flowers and whatnot. But around the time Blindside was happening, which is the start of the 90s, I started a, an unfinished graphic design degree where we got to choose electives and the elective that became my major was photography. And because there was a dark room, like with music, my burgeoning music career at the same time, it just fit a path that I can see now everything's related. Me getting into black and white photography, there being a lab at the uni, uh, to taking photos of my bandmates. That single you uh, raise has a picture of Hamish Cowan, who is, you know, my co-songwriter in Blindside. A picture of him that was out of a photo essay I did of a whole lot of pictures of him in a laneway in the city. Uh, and that laneway also is on the front cover of the Blindside album, Hope's Rise. I've sort of kept doing that always through my own releases. There's been elements of my own artwork and I like playing on Photoshop and doing layouts and I know a record's finished when I then sit on it for two months while I'm dicking around with artwork on the computer and people would say, well, really, does it matter whether the negative space there is black or white or mid-grey? It's like, what's that got to do with putting your record out? But it's actually a very enjoyable part of it. Can you talk to us about that completion that that does give you of having the right image for that record that's just been produced and about to be released? There is definitely a sense of a wholeness uh, and whether it's just uh, being a megalomaniac or having to micromanage everything and um, having my imprint on all aspects, I think that's that's kind of natural uh, if you've got creative urges to follow them. It does have a sense of wholeness doing the visual aspect. So too with video clips, having concepts for video clips that then you can get someone else involved to actually make it. But having an idea of what visually works with a song is, yeah, it's all part of the same expression, I think. Ursula Woods did the video clip or the music clip for Fragile. That's one clip where I can gladly uh, say, you know, that's all Ursula's amazing talent. She is a friend um, that I know through music. Her husband, Jethro, I play music with and I've known Ursula for quite a while. She came up to Melbourne and did a, video, a uh, film shoot for us for our promo pictures. She took uh, shots of Josh and I walking around the woods at Mount Franklin. We had thought to do a clip that day and it just didn't work out that way. And she said she had an idea for uh, something that she could shoot herself down in Tasmania where she lives. Yeah, the idea sounded really cool that it was really in the spirit of the lyrics of the song, which Josh wrote and there's an innocence, the song being fragile, there's an innocence like, I love Josh's lyrics, you know, and it's, it's not completely clear what it's about, but it feels to me like he's singing to his child and about them growing and allowing them that, but wanting to protect them, but wanting them to just noticing how brave they are. That's what it feels to me. Ursula's take on it, filming these girlfriends going on a road trip and having this sort of, 
delightful sense of wonderment at the natural world and just sort of the innocence and joy of friendship. That's another take on it, which is uh, as good a read as any of what the song might be about. Ursula did spend a couple of days on it, and there are people that she knew through, um, I think, a photography course or some sort of art course, so people also in the course, and she had been experimenting with Super 8 and whatnot with these people and shooting. She shoots quite a lot of underwater stuff. She lives on the Huon. She's done a lot of clips with people where she's got an underwater element. And the aspect of it being set in nature and it uh, is at Eagle Hawk Neck down there that uh, where they, they drive across, that whole area is just very scenic and beautiful. And, yeah, I guess also appeals, it ties into uh, Josh and him living in Castlemaine. He's a real nature boy, lover of the wilderness. Are you a bit of a nature boy yourself? Uh, I am a bit of a nature boy. Yeah, love and crave the wilderness, particularly the beach and a lot of family history of uh, trips down to the beach as a child. And I still feel the call of the water, like it's got some centering healing force. And I know some people are like the mountains and some people are like the sea. And I think I'm on the seaside of that divide. But yeah, I live in Pascavale South on Bell Street. You know, it's about as urban as it comes. And I like it here. You know, I like that nature is there to go, but that's just not the way my life has gone so far. Does it also make the heart grow fonder for nature for that very reason? Quite probably. I mean, I have uh, dreams that I would live by the beach someday, but I probably am not the only person to feel that way. But, yeah, I go down to the beach a couple of times a week just for a walk and fitness down there. Let's talk about that idea of the space, I believe, that you're currently in or nearby that Josh was welcomed into to make this very record. What was that feeling like, inviting someone you admire so into what essentially is your own private space? Well, it definitely is a private space for me, having a studio has come about through my own writing practice and teaching myself how to produce records. It's just happened over 30 years of starting on a four-track cassette machine, you know. So it's definitely a private space and there is a real intimacy in writing something with someone and that process to this extent I haven't done for a long time since the 90s really and yes an aura of great respect and admiration that did make it I think nerve-wracking for both of us. Josh thinks I'm all cool calm and collected and despite my monotone uh, delivery I'm usually you know bubbling over with all sorts of anxieties on the inside just increasingly good at yeah, wearing a mask that appears like I'm not uh, falling apart. But I think we were both nervous and excited. The first session felt like, oh, it's maybe not going to work. I think there was, um, it's very hard, even writing by yourself, to quieten your negative inner monologue and to feel like what you're doing is worthwhile or that it's good even. And I think songwriting, one of the things as an individual that it's really rewarding for is there's a meditative immersion about it, that in the process of doing it, you can work with that in a monologue or get past it. In order to do something good or create anything, 
you sort of have to allow ideas to gestate. You've got to give them time to become good. And that's by the thousand edits and decisions that happen on top of the most basic idea. So the first chord you strum, either by yourself or writing with another person, it's not the end of it all. You know, it's the beginning point and it, it might not even end up in the song. And I think for both of us, that process of it's not insecurity so much, it's being unsure, unsure of yourself and unsure of what is together. That made us both a little bit yeah, unsure what we were doing was any good. Somewhat of the flip side of that, and I'm quoting something you've already said, but I, I'd like you to expand as much as you'd like, that idea, and I quote, protection of a duo. Absolutely. A freedom that comes from releasing yourself from your own shackles and confines. You, know, you build this personality almost, and as a creative, you build an imagery around yourself that is familiar. And if you can release yourself from that and say, well, I'm capable of making anything. It's a little bit like a society. Why do we choose the things that we make? I think Josh and I have got similar and overlapping tastes in things that have influenced us, a period of life where we've made music through. And he's an avid fan of so much music that I don't know. But I think our sensibilities have got... um, there's contrasting elements that work well together, but there's also, there's probably more in common than there is that's different. And because of that, I think very quickly working together, that sense that we were both able to come up with things that we wouldn't usually come up with, that the collaboration brought out elements of ourselves that we otherwise would suppress, meant that very quickly, as soon as we had written a song, we could hear that, hey, this is cool. And there's enough positive reassurance of, you know, love you, mate, love you, mate, yeah, this is awesome, to feel like, wow, I can't wait to do this again. That's a snowballing feeling that's, you know, the keenness to do it again and do something else, see what we come up with. I think even in solo songwriting, there's an element of that where you get on a roll and it's a big problem-solving puzzle that you feel like you can't stop until you've at least got the edge pieces in yeah. place and yeah. you know what it's going to look like and these are the bits, these are the elements, I've just got to finish it another day. There is an intoxicating thing of being on a path towards a finished thing and you can see the light um, and you're moving towards that. How that works with two people is slightly different but uh, it's incredibly rewarding process and I think probably there's a stage of life element as well to be open to it not in a competitive combative way of my chorus is better than your chorus well I don't like your chorus or your lyrics are I think Josh as I said is very uh, gentle and uh, sensitive and we both well I'd like to think we're both gentle and sensitive but I think sometimes my gentle sensitivity would hit him like a steamroller Uh, whereas he would be more likely to just withhold encouragement for something that he didn't like rather than, you know, put it down flat. Gentle manipulation of us both massaging each other's sensitivities to arrive at a point where we both think, wow, listen to this, and we would finish a day, I'd burn a CD to listen to in the car and give Josh a lift to the train station to get the train back to Castlemaine in the evening. Captive audience. Yeah, well, two people sitting in silence listening to themselves going, well, we're awesome, you know, woo! 
this is great. Uh, so that that is an intoxicating, uh, addictive thing to do. You know, we really enjoyed making the record, and through that, we developed a friendship that you can only have through how much you have to reveal of yourself uh, in order to write honestly with another person. That's been a blessing, unexpected. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. On these numerous listens of the record, I've noted that Josh seemed to crack the code or at the very least shone a light into your own songwriting. Josh was the light to some shade that you had. Yes, I don't know if I was quite ready for that um, mm. aspect of it, particularly with things where in writing together, writing lyrics together is particularly challenging. And I think we fell into holes a bit with that, that I like the spring of an idea, here's some chords and a melody, and I'm making some words that sound kind of like ooga-booga-booga, and, you know, taking a seed of an idea and then crystallising it into something, giving it a meaning. Josh can craft lyrics and amazingly quickly that while I'm fleshing out the guitar parts and putting a beat down and so we've got a structure to sing to, He's making lyrics that make sense. All the while, these, back to your original peppermint teas and Turkish breads, Mm. a huge part of songwriting by yourself or with someone else is seeing inside, revealing yourself in some way. For me, that self-expression is a bit why I've always done it, to say things that I've needed to say or to get clarity for myself. So we learned a lot through our chats of the first hour or two just hanging out and having some dinner and a cup of tea and what's going on in our lives. And I think that then got reflected in the songwriting and Josh writing lyrics that I felt were very personal to me, that he's taken a view of me that I couldn't have of myself because it's me. And that to me is very revealing. Um, I wouldn't want to spell that out for the listener to say, well, these lyrics mean this. They're ambiguous enough to be open to any interpretation and that's beautiful writing on his part. But to me, uh, there's songs that hit a definite nail on the head where he's made a, a form, he's made my thoughts and feelings into a form where I can hear it and go, wow, you bugger. how dare you reveal me in a way I'm not prepared to reveal to myself or anyone else. And that's why I use the crack the code analogy, a bit like a mastermind. He knew what colours you were in order of. So something the public might not know, but he knew it was red, yellow, blue, blue, yellow, green. And he was able to put that into a lyrical form for you to hear back. What sense of vulnerability did you feel listening to the lyrics that were about yourself? A great deal, but also incredibly touched and grateful feeling that I could have that experience because that is a truly amazing thing, an amazing act of friendship as well. I think within our friendship, there's a kindness and generosity to collaborating with someone on what is artistic expression. There's a generosity in helping another person, even as an engineer or producer. There's there's a giving in that that is really rewarding uh, to work with people in the studio to help them achieve their artistic vision. That's a very satisfying job for me. 
but to do it as a collaborator in writing music together, there's a mutual give and take of that. So I just feel like, you know, what a wonderful experience to have. Yeah, very grateful for that. Now to the record and one of the tracks from it. Disappointment Town really touches that tension between disappointment and hope within something called a relationship. Now, we're not saying whose of the two it is, but what a lovely place to be talking about. Something particularly in these times where people aren't going out and escaping to other relationships they have with other people are stuck together. Yeah, it's funny how timing works in that way. Josh is responsible for most of the lyrics and the concept of that being a relationship-based duet. It's one of the first things that we wrote uh, musically and I had offered up sort of opening line of the melody of the verse um, that I came home and found my luck run out, my magic had lost its spell. It was a start, the idea of a song about disappointment called Disappointment Town we'd had from the very start of writing. I'd asked Josh what he wanted to write about and he sort of felt like this was a core theme of mature adult life as dealing with your expectations not being met or this is who you are and this is who you are now and being at peace with that, your word journey, I think a journey to be okay with yourself. Coming at that from the angle of disappointment, my opening line, uh, that's kind of like, hey, what's up, baby? How come you don't treat me so good no more? He took that and in his way made that, well, he'd like to hear the other side of that story, like who's the one who is disenchanted and how do they feel about it because maybe they feel exactly the same way and who's dropped the ball, so to speak. Why do things go the way they do? And I think he wrote a beautiful piece that, you know, I was blown away when he came back the following week that it's going to be a duet and had these parts that these are the two voices. And we started that by me continuing what how I'd started the song and he sang these interjecting parts. And there's the second verse is the partner's point of view that luck has nothing to do with it not a luck or out of luck situation but the idea that there's disappointments and a mature relationship rides through those and is stronger for accepting that people have faults people have problems that do or don't get resolved talking about that tension and of course through all that you would have been looking and you did find such a a great other voice to get on board in fact you got abroad on board how does that come about well we feel very uh grateful and lucky but kelly day is a good friend of mine and i worked on the last broads record they connected they'd done some tracking and then came here to continue the tracking and then i mixed that record And so spent months of studio time with Kel in finessing that. And we were already friends. We played shows together with Broads and her as solo playing shows that I'd done. I guess somewhere in that, she asked me to play guitar with Broads. When their record came out, I played a couple of shows with them filling in. And Josh was really excited about it because uh, I think aside from just being a fan, there's just something in Kel's voice that a little bit like an equal and opposite for my voice, having a world weariness tone that is 
matching in what the message of that song is. It carries the feeling of that song very naturally. It's just that perfect voice of we have been together for a couple of decades now. We have been there. We have no, no. You never put the washing out kind of voice. Yeah, we've we've made a record together, and that that is effectively having a, a pressure cooker uh, of a relationship. Talk about that uh, intimacy and the amount you need to reveal of yourself to work in collaboration, but. Certainly in the studio, when you record uh, singers' vocals, particularly if it's their own words, there's an intimacy in that that there's a vulnerability that's on the on display because you're hearing this and their attempts at expressing their words in the best possible way they can record and helping them get to that. So I feel like the bond Cal and I have is uh, very deep through a process of making music together and now having shared so much of our personal lives, I think I've got a lifetime friend there. She's the best. Nick Batterham is our special guest on Radio Notes today. Let's talk about him as a composer. 2007 did the film soundtrack for an Andrew O'Keefe film. Talk to me about when you were first interested in composing film music. At the end of the 90s, when The Earthmen finished, I was a little bit at a loss to what to do because that had really defined my adult life to that point and I hadn't used that time to amass any practical skills to use in the outside world. I'd been in a band. So I'd sort of got used to at least having my main life, the front of my life, being a sort of self-expression. I was interested in film, interested in filmmaking, and I was very lucky to get into the Victorian College of the Arts Film School, which is where I met Andrew O'Keefe. We were in the same year at film school. And The Independent was his first feature film uh, that he made. I guess that's five or six years after we finished film school. But for me, that interest in film, I sort of felt like when I was at film school, I was a bit of the naive artist that there are a lot of people who knew Cassavetes this and Fellini's Seven Film, blah, blah, and I was just like, uh, yeah, I mean, Star Wars and Die Hard and stuff. I'm playing more dumb than I am. But being part of someone's expression, like with making a record, making a film's like making an album or that's 50 tracks long and involves a hell of a lot more people. I think there's a high concept. There's, there isn't the immediacy that you get from making music the element of sound and music in a film brings forward the emotion for the audience. To simplify it, it is like it gives you the emotional reading of what the vision is. So you know, oh, this is sad. And this close-up of his face uh, where he looks like Roger Moore is sad. So for me, that just fits really well with not just making sad, <laughs> sad music, but it's communication of emotion. And I think that's really just the thing that I've been doing since I was a teenager is communicating my emotion. It's not a huge step to use that same function of myself to communicate someone else's emotional content. So reading a film, the first aspect of any film music is spotting cues as to where music's going to go. And I think a lot of composers work in a similar way of you sort of just make shit up. You 
play along to the vision and somewhere along the way what you're doing stinks. You can think of ideas of what the music might be like, but until you actually sit down with an instrument and make sounds and see how well they gel with the vision and if then the two things really resonate, you don't know what's going to work until you do it. But like photography, there's a sense of heart as well as a sense of yourself understanding within that as well isn't it if you don't understand what those characters are doing on screen the music will be quite average very true i think that's the same thing as the collaborative songwriting of enough needs to be revealed and on display and working with a director on any piece even if it's an ad or a short film or whatever there's a sense of needing to understand what they're communicating in order to be able to make something that helps them do that. The Independent was my first experience of such a big project. Most of the music for that had a slightly band sounding. It wasn't too far removed from singer-songwritery kind of music, whereas in more recent times I've done more classical music, a different kind of tonality, the same sort of expression. And referencing there the Roan Empire project, I guess. Yeah, and sort of commercial work where I think that's either side of that. The Roan thing has been a good demonstration that even to myself that those skills exist because <laughs> I always thought that uh, in film music I wouldn't be able to do classical music because I don't know what I'm doing and it's sort of greatly pleasing to discover that you don't have to know what you're doing. Hi, I'm Cynthia Toro. My latest album is Moments and I'm coming up on Radio Notes. Into the collaboration aspect of the new Bell Streets record and whilst it is the duo of you and Josh at the fore, you've brought some beautiful people together. Yeah, there's a couple of players who have played on other recordings including the Roan Empire soundtrack, the cellist from that, Phil McLeod, viola slash violin, Jenny M. Thomas, they had both played on Roan and I'd used them in the studio on a couple of record projects for other people. So when it came to doing those kind of instruments on it, they were kind of my wrecking crew for that. But also on the record is uh, there's two drummers, Josh's uh, drummer from the Steinbecks, uh, Joel Sprake, uh, played on half of the tracks and the other half is Craig Mitchell who was in the last incarnation of the Earthmen and has played on most of my solo records where there's drums, it's usually him playing them. So we both had our pre-existing relationships that were brought into the record and when it came to tracking the drums, you know, it's the bed of a song and they have distinctly different styles that worked well in the songs that they've played on. Let's do some quick things. Let's talk about reality TV, a fan of If You Are The One. Yes, I think that's just the time when we were making the record that when Josh would arrive at the studio, I have the television on as wallpaper with the sound off. It sort of helps my general concentration with being on the computer all day, having the TV on somehow helps my brain. But yes, I find that show quite entertaining. And Josh has also revealed in an interview that possibly for the two of you, Juliana Hatfield, I want your view on Juliana Hatfield. Would you want to tour with Hatfield? Well, I wouldn't say no. I didn't get into her records in the way that uh, Josh obviously did. But yeah, I don't dislike it. I think her music's great. Luke Howard's just released a new record. Have you heard it? I have not. 
I haven't heard his new record yet. No, I saw that uh, on Instagram just the other day. But yes, he's been helping me playing some piano on the new Rome project that I've been working on. Tell us a little bit more. I've known him a long time, but we hadn't worked together for about 20 years. Uh, the last connection being he did play piano on a short film that Andrew O'Keefe, the director of The Independent, made in film school. And that's when I first knew Luke. But he's played uh, keyboards with Matt Sigley, who was in The Earthmen, and we all know each other. Yeah, Luke's played piano on a couple of pieces for an upcoming Rhone project at such a long gallery. Uh, which was meant to be starting in about a month, but has been put early next year. But the music's written, mostly recorded, and we're just waiting for the gallery to reopen, really. Major projects have all been suspended like that. So it's annoying to be in a state of suspension uh, that, oh, I just want to finish it. And who knows what it will feel like to revisit it in months from now, how the connection to the music will feel. But I'm very fortunate that the project's still going ahead. Lots of friends in theatre, for example, have just had projects be cancelled and they won't see the light of day. I've got on my list Luke's new record, obviously, as well as uh, Tillman Robinson. I just need the right headspace to get into Tillman's new record to give it the ears that it deserves. Where is musician Nick at at the moment, particularly with your songwriting? Um, my songwriting is, you know, an ongoing concern and I've got a record pretty much finished that having this isolation time has been good for me to have an opportunity to keep working on it because it's sort of been on the back burner through the Bell Streets and the Rhone Empire Project and the Broads record and the Golden Rail record. I've had a record that's just like, oh, when am I going to get to do my record? And, yeah, back to the core of your question, in that there's a real difficulty of now coming back to it and the things being expressed in it do feel two, three years ago to me, who I was as a writer at the point when I wrote them, even as an arranger with the sound of the record. I don't fully feel like that's what I'd make now, but I need to finish it because it's a record of a time, just not this time. And I think that's problem is going to exist for everyone always. You know, it exists in the Bell Streets record and where do we go from here? That to me that's I'd love to do another one. When that happens, I guess all dependent on how well received this is, but the actual process of doing it is a process I'd love to go through again. Uh, putting out music into a world that is in isolation. I'm rocked with this feeling uh, daily about doing self-expression at the moment. Self-doubt, because it feels so trivial and self-centred in a time of such immense suffering. And I guess the artist, self-expressive artist, is always having this argument with themselves going, this isn't worthwhile. And it takes some external validation to make you go, oh, hang on, it is appreciated. This is a role to play in society. And I see through all the house concerts, you know, all the online concerts, and that's sort of, um, this great celebration of people and their expression, that there's a gratitude for it. Like, thank you for beaming into my home and entertaining me. If not a realignment, there's people are aware that the arts is valued. There is a sense of, well, actually, this is a valid 
thing to do as a life, as a job, as a career. There's a lot of performers who are really struggling at the moment because there hasn't been a safety net for them and their jobs have just stopped instantaneously. But as a society, we are recognising that, well, these people are important and that self-expression of the writer, of the artist, is as important as ever. It's just, again, quietening that negative inner monologue that says, this isn't worthwhile, this is trivial. Last time I mentioned Nick's name was, I think, to Meow Meow. Uh, What a great friendship you have there, I think, and what a great record she has as well. Yeah, she's a very dear friend. Um, I hope we get to work together again sometime. There's a collaboration that needs to happen more often, one would think. Throughout this entire conversation, I've been teased by Nick by him having behind him what seems to be, I guess, his outlet. What's the story behind that piano? Well, how long have you got? It's a winding story. I needed a piano for the studio and in hunting around... I'd wanted our family piano that I grew up with and it has a particular soft tone to it that's very, quite dull, not very bright. And so I wasn't interested in modern or usually Japanese-made pianos are quite bright and I wanted an old German thing and they have the letdown of being usually hard to stay in tune and a bit falling apart because they're 100 years old and most people have some sort of family recollection of one of them occupying a big wall or corner of a family lounge room. But I looked around and online and found one that I just absolutely loved the tone of because it was so gentle. And the guy who tunes my piano, Reese, he just always moaned about it because it just won't hold its tune. You put it in tune and by the time you get to the other end, it's out of tune in the first place. <laughs> I loved writing on it. It was a beautiful, inspiring instrument, but almost useless for recording. And so I went in search of another one and couldn't find anything like it. There were better quality pianos, but nothing that just had this X factor that is so necessary to write and feel inspired. And Reese found one through elderly retired piano restorer uh, named Ron, who had the exact same piano as the one I had that didn't stay in tune, but much older and in much better condition. I had to go and have lunch with him to meet him, for him to, he had retired, he'd gotten rid of all his pianos except for a couple that he couldn't bear to get rid of. And over lunch, I must have said the right things that he was prepared to gift it to me because I was the right person to have it. It's by no means a valuable piano, but the value is in the tone and the history and my connection to it. So Ron, over some months, did the restoration job on it at his 90-year-old pace. Um, And I've only had it now in the studio for a couple of months, and it's just, uh, I still love the old one. I gave that to Kelly Day, and I'm sure she loves it and probably curses it for the same reasons of it not staying in tune. (laughs) A little bit of a bad gift in its way, but it's a magical piano and it has a quality that uh, is different to this one. This one is working very well, and I'm working on a new Roan project, which I've done all the recording on this piano, and I just bloody love it. (laughs) 
That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Oh, that's nerve wracking. <laughs> Nick, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining Radio Notes. Thanks, John. Nick Badham of The Bell Streets. Debut album, Monument, is out through Pop Boomerang. They can be found online at thebellstreets.bandcamp.com. Next time on the show, we'll catch up with... Because I've been travelling heaps the last couple of years, so like between the States, I was touring over there, and now the UK at the end of last year. It's been like a compromise between like two loves so like because i'm chasing this dream but then i'm also missing out on stuff back home like my friends my family my dogs like my girlfriend everything like that so you miss the out on stuff wherever you go we noted the order (laughs) chasing the love maxo from canberra thanks very much to our feature guest this time round nick from the bell streets radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links web design there by steve davis theme music by martin kennedy and all india radio i'm tammy weller john merch is the producer and host based in adelaide south australia 